There are times when all hope seems lost, and yet, somehow, some way, we see in that hopeless situation a great reversal take place. I grew up as a boy in the 1990s rooting for the Cleveland Indians. And in those middle years of the 1990s, the teams were known for their ability to come back from any deficit. It seemed like no matter the situation, in any inning, no matter how far behind they were, they always had a chance to win until that last strike was thrown. And yet, it's important to acknowledge that all of those great comebacks occurred within the realm of the possible. We would say they were against all odds, but they were not something that could not have happened. It happened many times, of course. And I also recognize, in retrospect, that my faith in that team was not always rewarded. Nevertheless, in a similar way, in the passage we come to this morning, we're going to see something that's both similar and different. We're going to see how God acts in a similar way by bringing about great reversals into hopeless situations. But the difference lies in those two things I noted about that team. The first is in the degree of difficulty, and the second is in the degree of certainty that God can and will bring about the reversals that He has promised. For the things that God does, humanly speaking, very frequently occur within the realm of what is impossible for human beings. And yet, as we look to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, we're going to see and learn to trust and believe in the God, the God who fulfills His promises, the God who is faithful in every way, the God for whom nothing will be impossible. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 5 to verse 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at that hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been answered. Excuse me, your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Our Father in heaven, this is your word. It is true in every way. It is without error and it is perfect. We pray, O Lord, that you would work in our hearts to produce a readiness, a readiness that it begins with repentance, and issues forth in faith toward your Son, Jesus Christ, a readiness to receive your word, that it might have its perfect effect in our lives. This is something that we cannot do in our own power. So we look to you, O Lord, the one who does what is impossible, the one who gives life to the barren womb, the one who raises the dead from the grave, the one who saves sinners. We look to you, O Lord, because we know that all things are possible with you, and so we pray this morning that you would work in our hearts to receive your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we begin, I want you to consider two important contexts. Both contexts are rooted in the Old Testament. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that I said Luke would have us read his gospel in harmony with the Old Testament. He would have us read it as a narrative of the fulfillment of promises that God made in times long ago. And here from the beginning, in this early narrative in Luke's gospel, we see many of those promises beginning to take shape the fulfillment of these things beginning to come to pass. One commentator has referred to this passage as though it were an echo chamber for the Old Testament. It is stocked full of words and phrases and ideas that are straight out of old, the Old Testament. And not just one passage, but many, from Genesis to Malachi. We won't have time this morning to turn over every one, for instance, we could consider how Gabriel, when he reveals his name, reminds us of another time when he appeared to one of God's people, to Daniel in Babylon, in Daniel chapter 9. Or we could look at the way that Zechariah's service is explained by passages like Exodus chapter 30, where God commanded Moses to put in place the incense offering that they performed day by day throughout their generations. We could look at Leviticus chapter 21 and what it says about the requirements for priests with respect to marriage. We could look at 1 Chronicles chapter 24 and see how David organized the priests into their divisions, the divisions which continued until the day of Zechariah, for Luke notes that he's part of the division of Abijah, the eighth of those divisions. But we won't go through all of these, but rather what I want to do is to focus your attention on two central, two core ways in which this text 
resonates with the Old Testament. One comes from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, and it's the theme of the barren woman, the motif of the barren woman, if you will. And the other comes from the very end in Malachi, in what we heard read this morning from the prophet Malachi as he speaks of the messenger of the Lord who will go before the Christ. If we look back to Genesis, even from the very beginning, we see that God's promises would be realized through children. From Genesis 3.15, we see a promise that one day a child of the woman would come. And that child would be victorious over the serpent. He would put an end to the devil. And so from the very beginning, we see prophesied that God would fulfill His purposes for His people through offspring. By the time we come to Genesis 12, we see that that line, that inheritance, comes to a man named Abraham. But he's old, and his wife is barren, we find out. And they go for many years in her barrenness without a child. And yet God makes a promise to Abraham that he will make him a great nation, and that through his offspring he will bless all the nations. And yet Abraham must walk in faith for many years before that promise is realized. But then, in his old age, when he's 100 years old and Sarah is 90, God fulfills that promise and gives life to her barren womb, and she bears a son, Isaac. Isaac, too, married a woman named Rebekah who was barren until the time when Isaac prayed to the Lord and the Lord opened her womb and she gave birth to twins, to Jacob and Esau. And that promise passed through Jacob, and he too had a barren wife, though he had many children and he had two wives. One of his wives, Rachel, was barren for many years and suffered through the agony of not having children. And yet, in the course of time, God also opened her womb. He remembered her and he gave her a son, Joseph. As we progress through the Old Testament, when we get to the book of Judges, we see another barren woman, the wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson. And again, God visits her and her husband and gives them a word that she will bear a son who will begin to deliver God's people from the hand of the Philistines. And once more, when we come to the book of Samuel, at the very beginning, we meet another man with a barren wife, Hannah, the wife of Elkanah. And she pours out her heart at the temple before the Lord, asking for a son. And God hears her prayer and gives her a son, Samuel by name. And as we see these examples through the Old Testament, we see that a pattern begins to emerge, whereby God, in fulfilling His purposes for His people, in fulfilling His promises, shows that His promises can come to pass only through His work. And so He causes those promises to be realized through women who in and of their own power could not bear children. And yet God brings life to the womb that was barren. And not only this, but many of those, in fact all of those we could say, all of those sons that were born to these women, those sons through whom the promise would be realized, in some way were agents of God's salvation. They were men whom God used in order to save His people. We look to Joseph and how he was sent down to Egypt, and yet in Genesis 45 he reflects on the fact 
that his brothers did this to him. They sold him into slavery, and yet it was the Lord ultimately who did this so that he might preserve life, so that he might save for the Lord a remnant, and might deliver his brothers and his father and his family from certain death and famine. And similarly, when God gave Samson as a son to his parents, he gave him for the purpose of becoming a judge so that he might deliver the people of Israel. And so too with Samuel, who God raised up as a prophet and the final judge of Israel, who would be the one to anoint David as king, who would judge Israel for many years, and who would receive the word of the Lord after many years where God had been silent and had not spoken to His people. And so in this pattern, we see that very frequently, in fact, in every case, when God caused His promise to be carried forward by giving a child to a barren woman, it was accompanied by a work of salvation in some sense. And so too, as we come to Luke chapter 1, we see the next narrative of a barren woman in that series of narratives. And in the same way, we're going to see that the child that she is given is one who will figure significantly in the saving work of our Lord. The second context that I mentioned has to do with the messenger of the Lord. Turn back for a moment to Malachi chapter 3. We'll look at Malachi 3 and then also at Malachi 4, which we heard read this morning. Isaiah also speaks of the messenger of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40. But it seems to me that it is clearest. It is most concentrated here in the words of the prophet Malachi, which he spoke from the Lord. In the beginning of chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then again at the end of Malachi in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And here... In Luke, then, we hear that Luke is calling upon this language from Malachi. In fact, it's the angel who is speaking these words of the prophet Malachi, reminding Zechariah of those words to say that John is that messenger. He is the one who is the fulfillment of those promises because he is the one who is specially set apart by the Lord to go before the Christ to prepare his way, and to make ready people who are marked by repentance. So these are the two primary contexts that I want you to bear in your mind as we go through this passage then. But as we go through the passage, I also want you to attend to a detail in the text. I want you to note how often in this text we see the word day or days. It begins in the days of Herod. And in verse 7, most of our translations say something like Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years. 
but a literal rendering would be they were advanced in their days. So we begin in the days of King Herod, in the days of their old age. And then we usher forth into the days of Zechariah's service. And here Gabriel comes to him and speaks of a day of fulfillment. And then Elizabeth, when she conceives, she looks back on what has happened. She says, after these days, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. And she says this, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. And so I've titled this sermon, Days of Difficulty and Days of Grace. And I want to focus our attention also on how we see both of these ideas come forth in the passage. How we see days of difficulty. and How we see days of grace. So that as we see it, it might encourage us to live faithfully in our own day. As we endure days of difficulty. And yet, as we live in days of grace. Well, I said that it's day, there are days of difficulty that we see. It's from the very opening words. In the days of Herod. This is a historical marker. Luke is very interested in showing us how the things that took place are directly connected to what has really taken place in history. And so regularly, he gives us information that helps us to see where this fits in the history of God's people. But it's also a statement that is subtly political. That is, it speaks to the political situation of the people of Israel For Herod was not a son of David. He was not even really an Israelite. But he was appointed to reign in Judea in the year 37 B.C. And he reigned there from 37 to 4 B.C. He was appointed to reign by the Roman emperor. And so acknowledging Herod's reign is a way of acknowledging things are not the way they are supposed to be in Israel. There is no son of David on a throne. This people is not under the leadership of a godly man. We'll see that as we look to Matthew in the evenings, what kind of man Herod actually was. And yet he is the one who is reigning at this time. And so we see, before we look to Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation, a note about the corporate situation of the nation, the whole situation of God's people. And in some ways, we can see that Zechariah and Elizabeth's plight reflects the plight of the nation. For all their life, they were enduring this difficulty of being a childless couple in a society that supremely valued the blessing of children. And all their life, waiting for God to grant them a child and then never seeing that. And probably, we would, if we were in their situation, we would come to a point where we'd give up and say, hope is lost for me. And in many ways, I suggest that the people of Israel, not all but many, felt the same way. How will I ever see the fulfillment of God's promises to our nation in my own days when I look at the world around me and see what is going on? Let's look more closely then at the days of difficulty for Zechariah and Elizabeth more specifically. You see what Luke says here. He recognizes Zechariah's godly vocation. He's a priest from the order of Abijah. 
and their godly heritage. She is from the daughters of Aaron. He recognizes their own personal godliness as well. He says, They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We can reflect on what Paul says about himself in Philippians 3. There he's making a different sort of argument, but as he talks about his life before he came to faith in Christ, he lived his life assiduously keeping every commandment in the law. By no means was he perfect. By no means are Zechariah and Elizabeth sinless. But Paul in Philippians 3 could say that on his resume, he was blameless in respect to the law. Now there, Paul tells us he counts it all as not because all of that blamelessness is not sufficient to save a person. One must be justified by faith in Christ. And apart from Christ, one cannot be justified. And Christ, and Christ alone, we don't add any works. We are justified by faith and faith alone. Nevertheless, this is a true godliness. This couple lives their life not with godliness as a show, not like the Pharisees who made an outward show of their righteousness. No, Luke tells us they are righteous before God. And this righteousness reflects a true and real faith in their lives. They're seeking to walk in accordance with all the commandments of the law. But this sets us up for a shock because of what comes next. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. You see, in that context, as I've already alluded, people rightly saw that children were a blessing from the Lord. And they rightly understood that the womb ultimately was in the control of the Lord. And yet sometimes they reasoned wrongly that because children are a blessing, and because we can find instances where God judged people by closing their wombs, Nevertheless, it does not follow that every barren womb is a sign of God's displeasure. It did not follow in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were righteous before God, and yet to their neighbors, they would have looked at them with lift raised eyebrows. They would have spoken about them behind closed doors. What's wrong with them? What did they do that they can have no children? They would have lived their lives with this kind of reproach, as Elizabeth refers to it at the end of our passage. Indeed, among people, before men, it was a reproach, but they were righteous before God. And what they show us in all that is in all their waiting, in all this difficulty, that God was, in fact, preparing them for a yet greater blessing one that would overflow beyond them to many others. And we see that in what follows here as Zechariah goes to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. Now understand how this would take place. There were 24 divisions that David set in place, 24 divisions of priests. And by this time, Darabach tells us there were about 18,000 priests in Israel. Now, in these 24 divisions, you would then have something like 750 priests per division. They would serve in the temple for two weeks every year. At one week at a time, 
two weeks a year, and then all the divisions would come for Passover and for Yom Kippur. So this was one of those two weeks where Zechariah's uh, division was on duty, where they had to go to Jerusalem. And in the course of that week, they would offer sacrifices and they would perform the various priestly duties. And one of those duties was to offer incense. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 30. I won't go there now, but if you want to look it up later, Exodus 30 is where that regulation was given. The incense offering was offered in the morning and it was offered in the evening. Most likely, given the fact that this multitude of people is outside praying, this is the evening uh, offering of incense, but we can't say for sure. Nevertheless, if you do the math and you can do it on your own and you think through the various generations, you'll realize that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah with 750 priests in his division and more coming of age every day. He would not have done this before and it would not come again. But it points to God's providence. You see, they chose the person by lot from among those who had never offered incense before. And as we know from Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision belongs to the Lord. And so they understood this roll of the dice was not a matter of chance. It was a matter of God's providence. And indeed, God providentially chose Zechariah at this point to go into the temple and to offer incense. And in that development, as Zechariah goes in to do this duty, he sees the angel standing on the right side, that is the side of favor of this altar of incense. And he, as any one of us would be, and so many before who had seen angels would, were, he was struck with fear. He was terrified at this sight. And yet, the angel does not speak to him words of judgment or words of rebuke at first. He speaks to him words of grace. Thus he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Why not? For your prayer has been heard. We ask ourselves, what prayer did Zechariah pray? It's not as easy a question as it might seem. You see, on the one hand, Zechariah probably, for many times, for many years, had prayed for a son. But more than likely, he was not praying that prayer anymore. On the other hand, the offering of incense was a, a picture of intercessions, of intercessory prayer on behalf of the people of Israel, going up to the Lord. And certainly the people were praying outside and Zechariah would have been praying on behalf of the nation. But as many commentators have observed, perhaps we're not forced to choose. Because in the answer that he receives, Zechariah receives an answer to both prayers. He receives the promise of a son, but he receives a promise for the nation. You see what the angel says about this child. It says, Your wife Elizabeth, in verse 13, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, a name that refers to the grace of Yahweh, a name that reflects the grace of God. And he speaks, the angel speaks about this child, saying, He will bring joy. Not just to Zechariah, but to many. You will have joy and gladness, he says. And many will rejoice at his birth. This son's birth will not just be one that is a happy event for a few, for friends and family. But it's going to be a happy event for a community, indeed for a nation. 
It's going to be a cause for celebration and rejoicing. And why? Because he will be great before the Lord. The angel then goes forth to tell Zechariah in what ways he will be great. What kind of vocation has this child been set apart for? And the answer is that he is set apart for a peculiar work of preparation. That is, to be that promised messenger that the prophets spoke about of old. And in that setting apart, there's a responsibility that's incumbent upon Zechariah. He's to raise him in a way that um, keeps him from the privileges that other people in Israel enjoyed. Namely, he's not to drink wine or strong drink. This would have been associated with a Nazarite vow, which also included refraining from cutting the hair. Nothing is said about the cutting of the hair, and so we can't know for certain that this entails all that a Nazarite vow would include, or if this is merely a setting apart. But we do see that it's clearly a setting apart. Others in Israel were free to partake of the fruit of the vine, but not John, because John would be filled with something else, with someone else. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb, the angel says. He will be set apart from even before he is born for a peculiar work. And so, in the end, it really is a work of God. He is working through John to prepare a people for the salvation that he will work in these days of grace. He describes the things that he will do, going on saying in verse 16, and he will turn many of the children, children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he's going to do a work of bringing about repentance, of calling people to turn from their sin and turn towards the Lord again and renew their faith and renew their commitment to the God of Israel. This turning is further expounded with this quotation from Malachi chapter 4 where he says he will turn the fathers, the hearts of the fathers to the children. The idea here is that family relationships will be restored through this work of preparation. That fathers will again show concern for the well-being of their sons. And as Malachi goes on, Luke doesn't quote all of it, but Malachi tells us sons will also turn to their fathers. That is, children will turn to their parents in a way of obedience, in a way that keeps the commandments of the Lord, honoring their fathers and mothers, in a way that reflects an inward disposition of repentance and turning from sin. And again then, he says, he will also turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, this word is not the normal word you would see for wisdom, but it's a word that refers to practical wisdom, wisdom that is lived out. If we were to turn back to Proverbs chapter 1, we would see that biblical wisdom is not just about what goes on in our brain. It's not just about knowing a great deal of information, but it always flows forth to a life that is lived wisely, a life that ends in what does Proverbs say? Justice and righteousness and equity. That is, one acts with justice toward others, one is personally righteous in himself, and one treats others with fairness and equity. And ultimately, 
This kind of justice, this biblical kind of justice, so different from the justice that we see in our own day, is what is needed in a king, is what is needed in leaders, is what is needed in the people who would go before a people and lead them back to their God. People who in themselves live with righteousness. People who seek justice that is rooted in what Scripture teaches. People that seek fairness and equity in everything. The kind of wisdom that is lived out that we see in the life of Jesus most clearly. The one who is endowed with the Spirit, upon whom the Spirit rested. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this same Spirit endows John the Baptist from even the womb so that he might turn many to that wisdom, to the wisdom of the just. We'll see what that looks like in the weeks ahead as we see John's ministry play out in Luke 3. But all of this has a single purpose, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, a people who are ready to see the Christ and to recognize Him for who He is. For Malachi told us in the word that we, words that we read that He would come suddenly, but because of the messenger, He would not come without warning. Because of the messenger, the people should have been ready to receive Him ready to recognize Him when He came. And that's the special work that God has prepared and is preparing John for. And so what we see is that in this demonstration of grace to Zechariah, God's grace is abounding to many. That God has kept this privilege and this blessing from Zechariah and Elizabeth so that He might show them a greater grace in the day when He chose to show them grace that many would experience that grace. But Zechariah, for him, it's too much to believe. It's impossible to believe. How could this be happen? How could this happen? How shall I know this, in fact, is what he says. He asks for a sign, essentially, which was not unprecedented. unprecedented. God had given signs to people in the past. He gave a sign to Abraham. He gave a sign to Gideon. And yet... Though God does give him that sign, it does not come without a rebuke. For all Zechariah had to do was to look back at all those things that we talked about at the very beginning. All that we heard from the Old Testament. To see that all the proof that he needed was before him in an angel sent from the Lord. It was in the word that he knew. That it was in his mind. And yet he doubts. So Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. I've been sent to you to declare this good news to you. And you will have a sign. Because you did not believe, he tells him, you will be silent. You will not be able to speak. That will be your sign until the day that these things are fulfilled. You see, for, as he says, that which is predicted will be fulfilled in its time. Now the people are waiting outside and they're wondering, what has happened? 
It's a distinct possibility that Zechariah's delay suggests that he did something unauthorized and was struck dead. So they're probably thinking about this at the time. And yet Zechariah, when he comes out and is unable to speak, they realize, you see, he and other priests who were in the service at the time would have pronounced the words of blessing, a benediction over the people. But here Zechariah cannot. And he's just making signs and gestures, and they realize he had a vision. But the content of what he saw is hidden from this people until the day that it is revealed in the wilderness when John appears preaching the kingdom and calling people to repent. But it was not hidden from Elizabeth. For after those days when Zechariah went home, here there's a subtle allusion to 1 Samuel and that passage with Elkanah and with Hannah, the wife, the, the wife of Elkanah and the mother of Samuel, because the wording is identical to what happens when they go home. In any case, what Luke is doing is telling us that they go home and they just go about their life in that normal course of events. But indeed, in the course of time, Elizabeth conceives as the Lord spoke. And in recognition of this, she speaks words that acknowledge the grace of the Lord, the grace that God has shown her in these days, that he has taken away her reproach among people. And here again, she uses the same language, the same words that Rachel spoke when God gave her a son, when God gave her Joseph. He has taken away my reproach. But these words are also very similar to words that were spoken in a military context, to what David, for instance, said about Goliath. Who will defeat this Philistine and take away this reproach from Israel. And indeed, that's what's going on here. This is not just a grace for Elizabeth, and she knows it, and Zechariah now knows it from what the angel said. This is a grace for all God's people. It's a grace that abounds to our deliverance as John calls people to repent of their sin and look to Christ and receive Him in faith. And so here is a call for us for we have that same call. If we're to receive our Lord Jesus Christ, we must receive Him with repentance. We must acknowledge our sin and turn from it and turn to Him in faith, confessing our sins and receiving the grace that comes through Him alone. That repentance is essential to the message of the gospel and we must see it from the very beginning of the gospel, we see that message proclaimed. Now, in closing, I want to apply this not just to an attitude of repentance, not just to encourage you to have an attitude of repentance, that is, but apply it also to encourage your faith. You see, this passage teaches us how to live through times of difficulty while trusting in the goodness of our Father in heaven who delights to show grace to his people. You see, what it, what it shows us is that sometimes we must wait. We must persevere through times of difficulty, trusting that, nevertheless, the Lord who is good, indeed, as he says in Romans 8, works all things for the good of those who love him. And so as we experience any difficulty in our life, even the mundane things of life, we ought to recognize that this too 
is part of all things. This too is part of God's good and providential plan in my life. And He's working it also for good. And so I live through these things, whether they are big or small, trusting in the goodness of God. Not despairing, not losing hope. Perhaps you have a situation that is, or you, you've lived through a situation in your life that is not very different from Elizabeth's. Wanting for children, and yet not being able to have them. Perhaps it has to do with wanting a job, and yet not having a job, or not having the job that you would like. And yet this too, God is working out for your good. All things, He works for the good of those who love Him. And He calls us to persevere and endure through those times of difficulty, knowing that there are certainly days of grace ahead of us. In fact, knowing for certain that we live in days of grace that we have received. And the second thing, and the final thing that I would put before you is that this passage, is, passage teaches us to live by faith. By teaching us to define our hopes and our desires in life, not according to our personal interests, but according to God's greater purposes. You see what God did in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth? He withheld the blessing that they so desired, the blessing of children, so that when in His providence it pleased Him to give them that blessing, it would not just be a blessing for them, but it would be a blessing for all who believe in Christ. A blessing for all the people of Israel and for us. God withheld that blessing from them so that He might give it to them in a way that was part of His perfect purposes to wrap up all things, to sum up all things in Christ and to bring about the salvation of His people. And so too, we ought to order our hopes and our desires and our joys and, and the things that we seek not only for the things that we desire in this life, first and primarily according to the more important reality, the more important promise, the more important joys that are before us, those that are eternal and that are brought together in our common hope of a life forever in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that when we come to that day, we will not look back on our life with regret thinking we wished we would have had some of the things that we did not enjoy, but we will look back on our lives and look forward into eternity and say, as Elizabeth said, thus the Lord has done for us in the days when He looked upon us to take away our reproach among men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you, O oh Lord, are the God of all grace. And you delight to show favor to your people, to a humble people, to a people who strive through and endure the difficulties of this fallen world, people who trust you, people who walk by faith, people who repent of their sins and put their hope in you. You delight to show them favor. 
Therefore, we pray, O Lord, that you would encourage us with these words, with your word, that we might go forth from this place full of hope, not hope that is rooted in this world and in things that are passing away, but hope that is ultimately rooted in your eternal purposes, knowing that you indeed will work all things out for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.